In this episode of the Attention on Prevention podcast, we talk to Dr. Natasha Schur, a medical geneticist at Children's National Medical Center in Washington, D.C. Dr. Schur describes the role of a medical geneticist in abuse cases and how they fill a role within a multidisciplinary team of doctors in diagnosing abusive head trauma and abuse in general. Dr. Schur warns of the misuse of random genetic testing in abuse cases and how she is seeing cases where misinterpreted data has led to a children being misdiagnosed with a genetic disorder without proper testing. Brought to you by the National Center on Shaken Baby Syndrome. Welcome to our next podcast in our monthly Attention on Prevention series. I'm Ryan Steinbegel, Executive Director of the National Center on Shaken Baby Syndrome. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Natasha Schur. Dr. Natasha Schur has been a medical geneticist for 15 years who currently works at Children's National Medical Center in Washington, D.C. Dr. Schur also holds an appointment as an Associate Professor of Pediatrics at the George Washington University School of Medicine. Uh, Dr. Schur, we're thrilled to have you this morning, and uh, thank you for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you so much. So I imagine some of our listeners might be curious about what genetics has to do with child abuse. But before I get into that, Dr. Sher, maybe you could just start by telling us a little bit about what medical genetics is or what a medical geneticist does. Absolutely. So I think of a medical geneticist as a pediatrician, in my case, who has had additional training in order to recognize and work with children who might have disorders that are considered rare. Collectively, rare disorders are quite common, but we have additional experience in diagnosing and treating children who may be born with a congenital anomaly or birth defect or a metabolic disorder where they might be missing an enzyme in their body and experience in treating those kids with those disorders. Gotcha. Okay. So obviously, you, you know, in terms of just thinking about abuse, abuse isn't something that happens because of genetics. So how did you get involved in, into abuse and specifically abusive head trauma? So originally I became involved unwittingly when about eight to 10 years ago, there was a case of a young baby who had a medical diagnosis of child abuse, worked up by a multidisciplinary team. And then in the civil proceedings, a defense expert said that the child had a genetic disorder. This was Ehrlos-Danlos syndrome or EDS hypermobility. And that defense expert testified that this genetic disorder explained the very concerning fractures that this baby had sustained at about four months of age. When that happened and I was asked to consult on this baby for a second opinion, the baby was already one in a safe home, had not fractured again. And as I did a lot of research, I began to understand that this was not just about this baby, that this was a repeat pattern where there was misunderstanding about genetic disorders. Once I understood that, I contacted the Ray Helfer Society for Protection, 
Um, I talked to people in the American Academy of Pediatrics, and I really wanted to learn more about what I could do to provide clarity. After several years <laughs> of answering questions about fractures, my colleagues, other people began to ask me about head trauma, and I went through the same process where I read all of the literature, tried to learn everything I could in order to answer those very important questions. Is genetics now, is it more of a, is it something used to determine in a lot of cases of abuse, whether or not abuse occurred? Is that something that they're looking at more? So that is a little bit complicated. The mainstay of diagnosis in cases where child abuse truly happened is still a very thorough multidisciplinary evaluation. And this is a medical diagnosis based on decades of evidence and usually involves the child protection teams, social work, general pediatrics, hospitalists, orthopedists, sometimes pediatric radiologists all coming together. In more complicated cases, genetics might be called. So for example, if there's suspicion of a particular genetic disorder that might've caused the fractures that may quote mimic child abuse, or mimic abusive head trauma, that's where we play a medical role. There is a difference, however, between what happens in the medical world, the clinical world, as I've discovered, Sorry. and what sometimes happens in the courtroom. And so that's something that I was a bit surprised about at first, because I thought that the medical diagnoses and the courtroom diagnoses would be similar. <laughs> right. And that's where I felt that education was very important because we don't want to miss a child who has a genetic disorder and presented with a fracture or bleeding ever. And of course, it's so important in that case to return the child to a safe home. However, at the same time, we don't want to falsely blame genetic disorders when there is concern for child abuse. I don't make a diagnosis myself of child abuse. That's the child protection and multidisciplinary team. What I do is I help clarify whether a genetic disorder is truly present or not and educate about that. So it sounds like there are at least some genetic disorders that look like or sort of, I guess, mimic some of the things that we might see in cases of suspected abusive head trauma, what, what are some of those types of genetic disorders that might look like some of those injuries that we see in those cases? I will answer that question and tell you a little bit about those genetic disorders. But before I do that, I do wanna clarify that it's really important to understand the difference between a mimic and a differential diagnosis. So a mimic is something where it's really hard, even with expertise to distinguish the two butterflies in a picture that look alike, but only the world expert in butterflies can tell. A differential is where a child could present with a bleed or a fracture, but by doing a careful physical examination, three-generation family history, review of the case, review of the radiological and the laboratory features, you can separate between the genetic disorder and the potential suspected child abuse. Gotcha. All of these disorders are actually on the differential, but with expertise, they are not true mimics once you really look at the big picture of the child. Genetic disorders are rare, but easily diagnosable once you know what you're doing by looking at criteria, signs and symptoms, 
and all of those important salient clinical features and radiological findings. Yeah, I appreciate you making that distinction. I think it's important to know that even though some genetic things might look like the injuries that we can see in cases of abuse, you can test for those things very easily and rule out any sort of genetic disorder that may have caused those. So I appreciate you making that distinction. Yes, absolutely. In testifying in, in court and just, you know, you, you obviously hear that some of the injuries that we see in, in these children are explained by just, uh, or they offer an explanation that it might be caused by a genetic disorder. What are some of those genetic disorders that are being offered to explain um, the injuries that we see in kids? So there are some genetic disorders that can present with brain bleeds, and those include Menke's disease, luteric acidemia, Galactosemia really does not, but has been mentioned in the differential. And then there are disorders that are genetic that really do not present with mimics of abusive head trauma, such as vascular EDS. Vascular EDS can cause brain bleeds, but very different ones. And that tends to be in older children. And those are repeatedly raised by the defense but really have no basis in our multidisciplinary team workup for young children in these cases. And are, are many of these genetic disorders, are they, are they pretty rare or is it fairly common for a child to have, have one of these things? So for example, Menke's disease has a prevalence of about one in 100,000. Galactosemia, which really, again, doesn't truly mimic um, child abuse, about one in maybe, I would say, 20,000. Gluteric acidemia would have a prevalence of about one in 30 to 40,000 children. In addition, these children present with cardinal signs and symptoms, like I mentioned. So for example, in Menke's disease, on physical exam, you often see low muscle tone. You can review the growth curve and you could see a in these children. You can see exam findings such as a kind of sagging, drooping face or um, soft skin or hair that's unusual and sparse. There are many signs and symptoms that raise concern for these conditions. In addition, there are radiological findings for each of these disorders that are very characteristic if the genetic disorder is present. So they can be distinguished on the MRIs from child abuse with radiologists and multidisciplinary teams with expertise. So let's say a child comes to the emergency department and the child protection team gets involved and, and they suspect abuse. I would assume at that point, they may or may not do a, a workup to test and see if there's any sort of rare genetic disorders. If a genetic disorder is identified, what happens then? Is it automatically ruled out that it's not abuse, that the injuries were related to this genetic disorder, or is it more complicated than that? So in most cases, I personally do not recommend sending genetic biochemical or molecular testing if there are not clinical or radiological signs of the disorder, then there's probably no reason for the geneticist to be involved. If there are signs and symptoms that this is Menke's disease or gluteric acidemia, in the majority of those cases, it's not child abuse. There are some rare cases, though, where there could be a child who had gluteric acidemia, for example, which doesn't cause fractures, and in that case, you have to 
in Menke's disease, you can have both a bleed and fracture acidemia. If you saw a child that did not just have a brain bleed, but had fractures, that would make you wonder if it was an extremely rare where you had a genetic disorder also I would fall in victim to abuse. Gotcha. My experience, gotcha. most children disorders, we were able to say that it was a genetic disorder that caused the brain bleed or the fracture, and we did not um, end up making medical diagnosis of that. So it can be very rewarding a geneticist, families and caregivers that they didn't do anything wrong and offer genetic yeah. disorder. And obviously um, genetics has become more of a, a focal point in these cases because it is used uh, more commonly, uh, especially obviously in the courtroom to explain what's, you know, what's happened to these kids. And I am sure that some of our listeners have probably heard the stories and seen in the media and, and heard things like, quote, many individuals who are in prison were falsely accused of abuse, close quote, or, or quote, the science of abuse fed trauma is changing, close quote. As a physician, involved in helping to make these determinations about whether a child was or was not abused, what do you say or think about those, those types of headlines? I think that from my end, I approach in the world every case and every child as unique and very important to view the child as a whole and do your very best job with a multidisciplinary team on the child's behalf. And as long as I'm explaining my medical diagnosis and have called upon to testify, telling the truth and educating people about how I got there, my hope is that they will understand that we're not trying to make diagnoses of child abuse. In fact, we're trying to really hope for the best every case, every time. So when I hear those media articles, I worry that maybe two sides have not been represented and I worry that children are so young and vulnerable and they cannot tell their stories or speak. So my hope is that we as pediatricians and advocates for children can do our best every day, every time to be thorough and to value the importance of that child and put that child first in whatever medical and other decisions we make. It's interesting because I think in, in just talking to some people and having been interviewed in the past by a variety of different media outlets, I think some people believe that it's just a single person who looks at a child and says, you know, they have these things, it's automatically abuse. They don't realize that it really truly is a multidisciplinary approach that you have people from radiology, you have geneticists, you have, you know, a, a whole gamut of child protection workers looking at the totality of, of the evidence and what's going on with this child. And, and abuse is always the, the last conclusion that they ever want to arrive at. They're hoping that it, they can explain this with something else. And I think people forget that and want to just automatically think that we're all jumping to conclusions or that child protection teams are jumping to conclusions, but that's really not the case. Curious, Dr. Sher, do you have any thoughts about what you think could be done to sort of prevent this type of misinformation from getting out in, into the media and, and, and to the public? Yeah, I do. I think that families and caregivers of the child who's been abused, um, sometimes the people that bring that child to the hospital were not the perpetrators. And they want as much to get to the bottom of the truth as anybody else. And 
they are so grateful that we have protected this child who they also love. And so hearing those stories is incredibly rewarding. Hearing about parents who came to me and I told them, this is osteogenesis imperfecta. I don't think this is abuse. That's been very rewarding. It's not that I make medical diagnoses of child abuse. In fact, I've had great relationships with parents where I wrote letters explaining that if they fractured, it was likely their genetic syndrome. And most often um, they never had to use the letters because they took certain precautions, even in these genetic syndromes. Um, Sometimes you do fracture in genetic syndromes, but often they didn't need to use the letters, but they were very grateful. I've had foster families that adopted children that came with abusive head trauma histories or histories. And then in a good home, these kids are so resilient and have done so well. And they need to share their stories about how wonderful it is a child opportunity to be in a safe and home. Every child deserves that chance. And so if we hear those stories, and I've heard them throughout my career, we can see both sides and feel empathy. Sad that more of those stories don't make it into into the the mainstream media, because I do think they would be helpful in in helping people understand that it it is this multidisciplinary approach. And there are people working to figure out what's wrong with with kids. And it's not always abuse and abuse is actually ruled out quite a bit. So I I wish that side of it was told more. Dr. Sher, what's kind of your hope for the evolution of genetics and its role in terms of diagnosing abusive head trauma? I'm very concerned because in the last five years, I've seen several cases where genetic testing was misused. Um, So in other words, a child that had a medical diagnosis of abusive head trauma after extensive multidisciplinary team evaluation and also had fractures had, as part of the defense workup, random genetic screens then those random genetic screens showed variants of unknown significance, and that's not the same as a diagnosis, but those variants or potentially confusing results were misinterpreted and the child was labeled with a diagnosis. I've also seen cases where a child came back with a change in a gene but that was an autosomal recessive change and only had one change and an autosomal recessive disease in order to be affected, you need a change on both alleles, two changes on two separate genes. But again, it was said that this child had the disorder. So what I would like to see is very careful consideration of ethical guidelines for the use of genetic testing in cases of brain bleeds, fractures. We want to make diagnoses when they're there, but we don't want to use these broad, huge panels that find incidental findings. We're not looking to find in a child who's come with a huge brain bleed, whether they have a breast cancer gene mutation or not. That's too much for that child right now. So we need to be very cognizant of the risks of genetic testing. We need to be unified. We need to explain when genetic testing is and is not appropriate. And we need a gold standard system that evaluates these variants so that there is less room for misdiagnosis. In cases where there is benefit to genetic testing, a medical geneticist really should be involved. 
Um, I don't feel that it's appropriate for a caregiver who was not part of the workup in most cases to, without seeing or knowing the patient, send these broad panels. So I would like to see thought, ethical guidelines, unified guidelines from consensus um, societies, professional societies, and a recognition of the resources and benefits of genetic testing. You know, I've been doing this work in terms of working in abusive head trauma prevention for almost 13 years, and you're the first geneticist that I've met uh, doing this work. I'm, <laughs> I'm so glad I have met you, Dr. Sure. You know, I, I appreciate the description about the guidelines, and I, I think that would be incredibly important to making sure that child protection teams around the country know when it is and isn't appropriate to involve a geneticist, but also are thinking about doing that. Uh, do you feel like that many child protection teams are having, you know, a geneticist get it involved when it's appropriate, or or do you think that's not happening as much as it should be? I, I do think they're doing that. I think that child protection teams, the multidisciplinary teams at standard centers, good hospitals across the country are doing their job. The problem is not that. The problem is a lot of the outside consultations, and some of them are are good, but there is a lot of discrepancy in credentialing and who is giving genetic opinions after the child is discharged from the hospital. And so there's nothing wrong with the second opinion. Families deserve that. But some of the second opinions are not by people who have pediatric experience. And um, that concerns me. Yeah. So obviously, you know, examining genetic conditions in cases of suspected abuse of head trauma isn't the only thing you do. So I'm curious, no. what, else have, what else have you been up to, especially uh, during this whole uh, COVID pandemic? Yeah, it has been amazing. So I, actually, this is a very small part of my job. I really consider it more like <laughs> advocacy volunteer work. My yeah. main day-to-day -day job is so much fun. So I participate in craniofacial clinic. I'm the geneticist for kids with cleft palate, things like that. I'm the geneticist at the multidisciplinary clinic for vascular anomalies where people are born maybe with overgrowth of a limb or certain birthmarks and we help make a diagnosis there. I have been involved in developing a telemedicine program and helping develop apps for genetics education, something called wow. Bear Genes. Um, yes, it's been amazing. Cool. We've published maybe eight to 10 papers in the last two years on genetic things and telemedicine and models of care. I'm on a DC committee to improve access to care. Um, that is part of NIMAC, the New York Northeastern Caribbean Genetics Alliance. It's Helpful. been so much fun. Yes, yeah. it has been nonstop. So I get involved in so many of these wonderful projects. I'm doing a dream job. And so I feel that this work has been my attempt when I recognized a need to try to help in an area that really was underrepresented. And yeah. that's why I became involved. And I do feel passionately about it and want to continue to help. Yeah, you've... Uh... You're doing a lot of amazing work and I'm my own personal, amazing. I'm so thrilled to have such, such an advocate like yourself, you know, who pays attention and is interested in the work that we're doing in terms of child abuse prevention. I know it's a very small portion of your own work and you're doing some really fascinating things, but 
Dr. Shaw, I really want to thank you for taking the time to, to talk with us and, and be a part of this podcast series. It's, it's always great and a, a pleasure talking with you. It is so nice to talk to you and you do amazing work. It's so needed and you really are such an amazing advocate. So I'm very grateful for these opportunities to talk to you and work with you and learn from you. Oh, thank you so much. All right. Well, that uh, concludes our monthly podcast. We hope to see you all back uh, next month for our next series in the Attention on Prevention podcast.